from Matthew 7 and Matthew 13. Won't we stand to receive this word? It's from Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And now from Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Eric, for uh, sharing that with us, and thank you, Emily, for holding down the fort while Eric was gone. Um, Loved that translation from the message of the Beatitudes, Um, and that first of the all eight beautiful peacekeeping uh, principles is uh, to be grounded in a theology of the kingdom of God as our first and primary allegiance. it's a responsibility of, of, of mine and a responsibility of yours um, to ask questions regularly in the midst of our ordinary lives, in the midst of running from here to there and getting through our weeks to ask questions. What are we here for? <laughs> to really pause and, and ask and sit in meta-level questions like that. What are we doing here? What, what is the purpose and an, an answer to that question uh, for Trinity Grace Park Slope, an answer that I hope you will find to be true is we are trying to seek and to understand and to live in the kingdom of God. We are trying to prioritize the kingdom of God in the way Jesus said. Uh, We believe that that happens through relationship with God himself, that we are uh, created for and made for union with God in the most intimate relationship possible, literally that God would put his very spirit in our spirit, that through, through the process of relationship called discipleship, that we are conformed to be more and more like the character of Jesus, the character of God in our very being, and that has to inform how we relate to one another, both to our friends and to our enemies in the human community. Jesus said, you have to make this your priority. Like, 
Uh, in, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that, where we just saw that beautiful setting where it was delivered, Jesus said all these things, and he's addressed you know, worry and finance and relationships and, and, and conflict and forgiveness and, and all manner of things. And he says, listen, but, if you, but let me give you the priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the rest of this will be taken care of. Like, if we misalign the priority of our hearts, we set ourselves up for disillusion, meant for our lives, for the wheels coming off. So that's what we're doing in Easter Tide. We're trying uh, again, over and over again, to root our lives in the reality of the kingdom of God. And uh, this particular Easter Tide, we're looking back at the prophet Isaiah. What did he say when the kingdom of God comes? Uh, this, this, this prophet of Israel saying these promises that have been sown in the story from way back, when they come to fruition, when the kingdom comes or it begins to come, what's it going to look like? We're looking at those, this is hundreds of years before Jesus the seeds of promise. And then also, what did the kingdom look like when Jesus was teaching about it, right? Jesus comes, he's announcing, hey, repent, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is like this. What else should we say? The kingdom is also like this, and the kingdom is like this. And then he said, the kingdom is like when this person sees that doesn't see, they've been blind. When this person walks that hasn't walked before. When this person has enough to eat. When this person is brought in, and he's demonstrating it through his actual ministry, through his miracles. He's showing, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. So what are the realities of that for us now? So each week we've been looking at one major reality of the kingdom of God that was promised from Isaiah that shows up in Jesus' parables and I think we're meant to interact with now. And this week is peace, which is why it's so appropriate for Eric to share even the beginnings of reflections upon this peacemaking pilgrimage that he's um, been on. But just in case you don't believe me that peace is one of the signs of the kingdom of God, I have it from Isaiah. Isaiah 32 This beautiful passage on the promised reality of the kingdom of God. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind, and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Till the spirit is poured on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert, and his righteousness will live in the fertile field. And that day, the fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. When the kingdom comes, it will come and bring peace. When we hear the English word peace, um, as, as sort of we're immersing ourselves in the biblical story and the scriptures, we need to hear the Hebrew word shalom. When we hear the English word peace, uh, this word shalom is, is a word that stretches beyond just the absence of conflict. It would, it, would, it would not be enough. It's just scratching the surface to say that we don't have people fighting each other. We have shalom. Um, it's not a word that can be summed up with a shallow sentimentality, sort of like the hallmark version of Christianity when you're having a really hard time that's very complex and the multiple realities of your life are converging all at once and your life feels like it's literally shaking at its core and someone comes along and says, well, brother, you just need to pray more or trust God more. And, and maybe that's true on some level, but the shalom that's being talked about in the Hebrew scripture is something that is willing to face the full scope of the reality of being a human being and being a human being in a complex story with ripples of consequences from decisions from generation to generation. That it is literally impossible for us to go about achieving it on our own. Shalom in the biblical sense is not just about your group winning or more people being added to your tribe. It's about the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. 
It certainly does deal with our inner life, but it's also much more than that. It spills over into our relationships with our neighbor, into the systemic problems of our world. It's, it's certainly m- about more than just personal peace and affluence. And Francis Schaeffer, uh, a modern prophet, said uh, early in the 20th century that this is one of the dangers the church was heading for, that we were going to make the gospel basically just about personal peace and affluence. How am I doing and how's my retirement fund? Those are the things God cares about most. This shalom of the Hebrew scriptures is the peace that's so longed for, that's craved in our hearts because of reality. (laughs) Because if you've been paying attention at all, there is real tension, conflict, strife, evil in our world. There's evil out there and strife and contentiousness, but you know what? There's also brokenness and strife and tension and conflict in our relationships, in our own friendships, in our own marriages, in our own relationship with our coworkers. And then also, and we're humbled as we get more and more honest, there's also those same realities in our own heart running right through through the middle. Eugene Peterson, who beautifully gave us that message translation of the Beatitudes and has written so much on, these, uh, on this idea, says this about shalom, and I think it's re- really helpful. Shalom, peace, is one of the richest words in the Bible. You can no more define it by looking up its meaning in the dictionary than you can define a person by his or her social security number. It gathers all aspects of wholeness, wholeness, that result from God's will being completed in us. It is the work of God then that when complete, releases streams of living water in us and pulsates with eternal life. Every time Jesus healed, forgave, or called someone, we have a demonstration of shalom. When the kingdom comes, Isaiah says, shalom will break out to the fractured margins of our world. So, Jesus tells two short stories in the book of Matthew, one in chapter seven. It's actually the first parable that he gives, the wise and foolish builder, and then another in chapter 13 that I think there's a correlation between. And if not, then we're gonna waste about 30 minutes trying to make there be one. Interestingly, both of these stories, the wise and the foolish builder and the wheat and the tares growing together have to do with judgment. Like, this is the week I chose to bring a friend and we're gonna spend 15 minutes on judgment. You ready for this? It's gonna be great. Um, seems about as far away subject matter wise as we would want to be on a week that's supposed to be about peace um, but, but Jesus um, doesn't seem to see the problem with it um, judgment for us especially related to religious belief and practice is one of the very last things that I know most of you want to hear about or be associated with. Um, And yet Jesus tells both of these stories in our text this morning, and he draws a connection between peace and judgment. So we're going to have to hold some tension in the room together as we, as we explore that. Now, at a certain level, we know that it's impossible to go through life without, without judgment, right? So we know when we, when we say, oh, we shouldn't be judgmental, that we're not really thinking about it all, all, all the way through because you can't go through life on some level without, without making choices. This is just simply the reality of deciding if we think something is valuable. You make a judgment call on whether you think something is valuable or not, or making a judgment call on whether or not you think something is true true or not. Now, we we can agree that we must make room for people to hold on that level different judgments. And we shouldn't say foolish things. I I think we shouldn't say foolish things like all judgments are equal, right? 
Otherwise, what's the point of, of, of conversation? All, all, all judgments of, of statements of value or statements of truth utterly can't, can't be equal. Even when we're talking about religious belief, utterly, that's, that's to diminish all faiths. If these faiths hold contradictory truths about the nature of reality and the nature of, of God, and we're saying both are equally true, then we're essentially saying, ah, neither one of them matter at all. Let's just go to work. We all make judgments all throughout the day. I'm sitting with my neighbor yesterday watching our sons play baseball, and we judge. Or we evaluate, if you prefer. We share opinions. We weigh value. We say things either through genuine statement or through comparison, through sarcasm and humor. We're judging. We're saying what we, what we think about, about all kinds of things, about the weather and how it's finally warmer, about the vest that the other coach's team is wearing. Um, and as our game got worse and worse, we just made more and more fun of his vest to comfort ourselves. They, they mercy ruled us. Do you know what that means? I mean, by the fourth inning, they had so many runs that it was impossible for us to come back, and they called the game. And I spent the ride home putting back together my son's confidence. Um, oh, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Don't judge. We, we talked about Rayo's, this Italian, uh, famous Italian place in East Harlem near the field where we were. We talked about the difference between our childhoods and our children's childhoods, growing up in suburban environments versus growing up in the city. We talked about judgments of the ump's call at first, how the league is organized, and about if it's cheesy that I ordered a team sweatshirt for my son's little league team. What do you think about that? <laughs> Not cheesy, right? I want to be a supporter. And you can read my blog at overbearingparent.org, um, how to get your son to the majors, whether he wants to go or not. Each of us was sitting there offering, offering judgments. And most of us, we get that. We have no problem with this type of judgment. We know that it happens all the time. What we're concerned about when we talk about judgment, the part that bothers us, the part that makes us have a knot in the pit of our stomachs and feel tension, is when we're talking about judgments that bring about or reinforce exclusion of someone from something that we feel everyone should be able to be a part of, right? That's when we feel tension about judgment, when, when there seems to be a, a coming exclusion or reinforcement of that exclusion of someone uh, from something that we, we would share, a, a, a shared sentiment that everyone should be able to be a part of. What am I saying? Well, God's love. You're saying if I don't believe like you believe that I can't be a part in God's love, and that's a type of judgment that makes us uneasy. Or, or that the, the, I shouldn't have a chance to believe what I want to believe, right? And so we're in this tension between my personal autonomy, my personal choice, and is there a reality that is the baseline truth about human nature and the universe and God? And if those things are different, what do we do about them? About my autonomy and ability to make judgments and choices, and then about the actual reality of human life. And right, that's what we, even there, we can't say, can we say that every, every judgment, every choice is equal? I don't think, I don't think that's responsible or helpful. The scriptures are willing to have a varied and nuanced view of what judgment is and when it should happen and who should do it. And one of the things that comes up over and over again in the scripture's treatment of the subject of judgment is that final judgment is reserved for God. And maybe for me, that's like a sigh of relief. You, I felt like some of you were less so. Anyway, we'll keep going. We human beings are not equipped for making final judgments about things, and so we need to stay out of that business. So, 
small and large decisions, small and large judgments, important and trivial judgments are ours to make, and many of them uh, matter a great deal. Many of them profoundly affect our lives together, but only God is equipped to make final judgments because only God sees the full story as it really and truly is. So to me, that's comforting, but it also reveals another reality that, that we need to confront and face, and that is both of these parables say that God will make final judgments. We just sit in the tension of that for a moment. In fact, the scriptures, they regularly return to this reality that our choices matter, our choices really matter. And that the nature and trajectory of our lives really matters. And that God will have things to say about it. And that there will be actual consequences for the choices we make with the gift of life. So, for me, that is an intimidating reality. That's one that I was terrified of when it was handled um, in religious environments with a gleeful, sort of, in a gleeful way. Like, you know, like when, when God's final judgment about things was used as a way to manipulate behavior in children, I think that's, like, not great. Um, so I grew up like, uh, that's where I think that like God stomping around with a clipboard about, your, you know, with your life's behavior on it or, you know, like we had these really vivid videos when I was a child of like you walking in, everyone's standing in line slumped over and like you're going to get there and they're going to play a video of every moment of your life and God's going to be like, oh, can't look at this. We're going to have to fast forward through this part. Everyone look away. And it's just going to be this horrible, horrible, like horrible, horrible thing. And yet, still, the scriptures are not bashful about saying your choices matter, and the nature and trajectory of your life matters, and what you do with the gifts that you've been given really matter. And there are, there are some mistakes that are so final that God essentially says, he declares over your life, this is, this is the final judgment, this is the reality. You, you, C.S. Lewis puts it like beautiful and gently, like some people say to God, your will be done. And other people say, and other people, to, to, to other people, God says, no, your will be done. Because they said, we don't, I want nothing to do with God. And eventually he says, okay. And that, that's a con, there's a consequence of being separated from God, even by repeated choice in your life, it has, it has some tragic, tragic consequences. So these two realities that we've read, this, these two parables, sorry, that we've read this morning, they point to this reality of judgment. It is an intimidating reality, but we should be glad that the prerogative of judgment is in the hands of God who was literally nailed down to the cross out of love for us. If there's going to be someone who's going to judge us as individuals and judge the world, I'm very glad that it's the same God that came and poured out his whole life for us. Because we know when we make judgments about one another, we're always... You know, it's always sort of a Malcolm Gladwell blank situation. We're not dealing with all the information. We're, we're making judgments from our perspective, and we're not able to take in the fullness of who this person is or who, what the situation is. And I'm so glad that God will know all, will have all the information and will have incredible love as he judges the world. So let me give you a quick, quick summary of the first parable. The first parable says that what you build your life on, what you make as its foundation— will eventually be found out. 
It says this parable, right? Every parable has a main sort of thrust that it's saying, and we're not trying to make every single detail say more than it's supposed to say. This is principles for interpreting parables, but it's saying that in the middle of the story of your life, in the middle of the story, it might not be perfectly obvious to those outside what your foundation is. What's the founding, grounding reality of your life? What are you building your life on? There are parts of the story in the middle section where it might not be immediately clear what your foundations are, but there will come a day when the reality will be shown for what it is. That there's a a testing point that comes in your life. And what seemed outwardly to be strong and stable and secure crumbles underneath because your, your life was founded on something other than God and his words being put put into practice. I had another a sobering experience, right? This happened so much more than I'm comfortable with, um, but a prominent pastor in uh, American Christianity was removed this week by the elders of his church for repeated patterns uh, of, 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 of sin and inappropriate behavior outside, outside of his marriage, short of adultery, but uh, heartbreaking, sobering. When I was a when I was in my early 20s and I was just, I'd just come back to God and I was so zealous for God and I had that sort of remnants of the church I grew up in still squarely in my heart, I would just rail when a situation would happen like that. I'd be like, oh, can you believe this? These people, they're such hypocrites. They're saying one thing and doing another. And now I just sort of just like, hmm, don't say very much. I just know life is really, really hard. And I feel like, gee, that could have happened to me. Gee, I hope that doesn't happen. Gee, I better be really honest with people around me. I better make sure that the foundation of my life is not what these people who are listening to sermons think of me or how many people are coming or should I start a podcast? <laughs> I've shared with you guys how, how challenging some of the last 12, 12 months have, have been for, um, for me. Um, there's been change in my, my personal life and, and my network of our closest friends. Some people who moved here with us um, to help start this church have, have moved away. You guys are familiar with some of those realities. There's change in our, in our church. We've had like key, key staff members, people that have been around. And then there's just the, the, daily, the daily grind of like the up and downs of life happens, right? Like, um, you know, you don't choose the weeks where your friend gets in an, a terrible accident. You know, you don't choose those moments. Um, just as a brief reminder, we're going to keep encouraging you guys to pray uh, for Justin Pines, who's in the hospital recovering from uh, a spinal injury. Um, but you have those moments, right, where you feel like quitting. I'm sure they're not just unique to, to my, my world and my life. You have days where you, where you feel like quitting. You have days, right, where you feel like selfishness is so much easier than love, <laughs> Love is this outpouring and this outward focus and this energy of attending to other people's needs and, and realities. And man, it would just be so much easier if I could just focus on the very small world of my own selfishness. One of the <laughs> rules of, of life, I have these four things that I try to hold on to as headings for my life. And, and I would encourage you to, to, pr- to pray about something like this, G- give some study to what, what a rule of life is and um, uh, one of one of my four four things is to choose love over indulgence, because I know that's one of my tendencies. When things get really hard, just to sort out my own needs and appetites. 
You have days when your confession about God is a long way from your lived reality. And that's what this parable is getting at warning us about. Hey, don't, don't ignore this reality. Jesus, if you put these words of mine into practice, you're building on a solid foundation. But if you're saying many things with your outward life and it's not matching your inner reality, don't let that go on very long. And I I just noticed in the difficulty of these last 12 months, I know by the grace of God, the foundation of my house is built, of the house of my life is built on, on on the grace of God and his foundation. But I have been guilty many times of trying to build lavish, uh, sort of second wings of the home on the quicksand. Jesus, in this parable, he gives an astonishing promise and a stern warning. I'll give you the astonishing promise. Basically, it's this. With all of life's uncertainty, you can be certain of something. If you put the words of Jesus into into practice, you you will be building your life on a foundation that will not fail. Just listen to the words. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Now, interestingly, this is how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. He's just, he's just given his most direct s- series of teachings that he will give in his entire ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. What, what, what is the Sermon on the Mount? It's the reforming constitution of freedom for life in the kingdom of God. And Matthew, in particular the gospel writer Matthew, gives it to us as a, re, as a re-giving of Torah. <laughs> So in the way that Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 400 years and they come out and they go through the the Red Sea and they're they're headed to the promised land and God says, I got to reform your culture from one of slavery to one of freedom to represent me as, 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 as your king and to live this blessing that you're called into. And he gives them the law, the word of God to live into. And Jesus is doing that. He's saying, he said, you've heard it said and I say to you, here's a re, here's a constitution of the kingdom of God how to live in freedom, how to live in fullness, how to live in real abundant life. And then at the end of that, he says to them, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is building their life on a foundation that will not fail. We have to be a a little bit aware of a reality in the American church that is false, that the Teachings of Jesus about the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, etc., were just given to show us how far away from the reality of God we are, so that we're over here and God's over here and we need the cross bridge to unite us. You know that picture? And basically, Jesus' teachings are just showing us how wide the gap are. Now, on one level, that's true. When Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, he is showing us how far our nature and reality is from God's, and that we absolutely, utterly need the death and resurrection of Jesus to bring us back together. But Jesus is saying, you've got to live, once you're in that relational connection, your calling is to live out this distinctive way, this kingdom ethic, this alternative vision of life, and to just say, oh, that was impossible. That was just to show me how much I needed it. God's redemption is to dismiss the teachings of Jesus, which this parable says, if you do, it's like building on sand. I want you to hear the relational heart in the center of this parable. To hear these words is to give space for relationship. To trust that the one giving these words is trustworthy is to make space for relationship. To believe that the one giving these words is a reliable guide into abundant life is to to value and, and signify love and trust in relationship. It's to have confidence that this relationship will actually last, that the God 
who's making these promises can fulfill these promises. Our relationship is founded on the character of God as being who he says he is. Jesus highlights this with his disciples at the, at the end of their time together in John 14. So we're, we're going to read this. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works of these things themselves. Now, just for a second, we're going to pause at the start of verse 12. This is Jesus right before he's betrayed and crucified. He's giving the movement of the kingdom of God over to his disciples, and he goes on, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do Whatever you ask in my name, that's a promise for us as a church, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Why would you follow the Sermon on the Mount as your, as your foundation of your way of life? Jesus is saying it's connected to love. If you love me, if you've been brought into union with me because of this message of the gospel, now you will base your life on following my way. If you love me, keep my commandments. Right, this is so much different than if you love me, confess belief in me one time and then get your, your passport stamped and then when you die, you'll, be, you'll end up in heaven and then the rest of your life can just be about personal peace and affluence. No, 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 no. Because you love me, because we're brought into union, now you're living out my kingdom. How on earth do you do that? Sermon on the Mount. The parables of Jesus, the way of Jesus. When he, when he gives the whole movement over to his disciples, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. The imperative is the, the way of the kingdom comes through the life of Jesus. We can't do discipleship at all without the message of the Gospels. All right, I think we got that. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, there's enough relational equity there that you will trust me to do them. You will find that your life is built on a rock. Now, both lives in the parable experience storms and winds rising and st- like tsunami-like conditions come into both lives. So we can't hear this parable as a promise to an easy life. Build your life. If you hear these words of mine and you put them into practice, you will be sheltered from any storm. No, it says the storm will come and your house will stand. Your life will, will remain intact. It is to say that you will be given something that is out of reach from certain kinds of final trouble. That if it's still trouble, it's not the end. You will be built on the rock. The foundation of life is this trusting relationship with God where you are willing to follow the way of Jesus in practical obedience. Right? And this is unlike the other side of the parable. Very simply. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What's happening with these people? They're saying, I hear these words, and yet I don't trust the source. There's a relational break there. I just think I'll do it my own way. Or I've tried and I don't think I can sustain it because I've been trying to do it outside of the framework of relationship. I've been trying to live the way of God without union with God and that's always destined to fail. They're saying, I'm gonna build my life on something else. I'm gonna curate my own happiness and I'm gonna seek to meet the deepest needs of my life out of my own resources and my own plan. I don't need God so much to be involved. Thank you very much. And Jesus gives a stern warning to this. 
right? Jesus is, is, is not that good at PR sometimes. He doesn't, he doesn't soften things up enough. He's just like a father who's frustrated that his kids are gonna run off the cliff. He says, don't deceive yourselves. When you have a confession of your life without a commitment to obedience, there is deception at work in your heart. The Jesus we proclaim has come as Savior to rescue us, to bring us into relationship, and Lord, to be the king and director of our lives as we walk with him in the kingdom of God. We don't have the option of having one without the other. Like We can't just have Savior and not also have him as king of our lives. Jesus knew this reality. He knew that confession of belief without the reality of a love relationship and practical obedience was a strong possibility for us. That's why he says at the, end of, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount as well, Matthew 7, this is such an intimidating passage, but we have to let it have its weight in our heart. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus is willing to take a very hard path to peace. But he's saying, peace that doesn't, that doesn't face these real realities is a false and shallow peace. Peace that doesn't confront the, traject- the nature and trajectory of our lives really and truly is, is, is a false and shallow peace. Jesus' parables are especially effective at cutting through our posturing, at cutting through the hypocrisy that we're very comfortable with in our hearts and getting to the true nature of the kingdom and whether our lives are in line with it in the midst of it. We were confronted with this reality in the first week of the series. Derek Morphew, the South African theologian, says this, and I just wanted to give it to you one time as we prepare uh, to wrap up. Derek Morphew says, an overriding theme in the parables of Jesus is the relationship between the present and the future, between the kingdom now and the kingdom to come. In the present, the kingdom comes near to men and women through the preaching of the word. In the future, the kingdom will confront men and women in final judgment or mercy. This tension brings people to a crisis of response. How they react now to the kingdom will determine how they stand in the future coming of the kingdom. Because the future of the kingdom hovers over people with such nearness, their decision cannot be postponed. They cannot afford the luxury of taking their time to decide. Yet we must not think that people can determine their status in the future kingdom by their behavior. We enter the kingdom by grace. It breaks through to people who do not deserve it. Our response is merely the receiving of the gift. Jesus' parables are meant to bring the crisis of decision moment home to our hearts on a regular basis. What are you building your life on? Be honest with yourself and honest with God. And if there's a discrepancy in what you say and how you live, be honest about that reality as well. Because that that pathway of honesty and vulnerability is the only way to arrive at actual peace. The gospel is that we are so loved by God that he's come to redeem us and make us his own by grace. And an evidence of that grace in our lives, a way to see it, is that we love Jesus, we're in real relationship with him, and we're seeking to live his way, the way of the kingdom. What is the way of the kingdom? See the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not, I'm not going to read it again for time's sake because Eric read such a beautiful translation of it. But Matthew 5, start there in the Beatitudes. 
There's no way to escape the promise and warning of this first parable. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And it says that they marveled at Jesus because he taught as one who had authority. He wasn't just guessing or life coaching. He was saying, stake everything you have on this, prioritize this above everything else, and your life will find order and fullness. And then here's the thing. Jesus says, once you've been honest about this reality of judgment in the kingdom of God, you can become a terrifically non-judgmental person. And I mean non-judgmental in the bad and final labeling way that all of us are resistant to. Essentially, once you realize that final judgment of your own life and everyone's life is in the hands of God, you're able to release that responsibility to God and live with people in the tensions of life without having to declare final judgment on them, without having to label them and categorize them so that you can dismiss them, without having to compete with them for your evaluation and approval because you know that ultimately comes from God. It's a way to reduce the strife in our own lives and elevate peace when we see that final judgment is actually in the hands of God. Hear the second parable again as we close. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? And no, he answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And that is a picture of, of, the, of the final decision of God at the judgment. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Why does Jesus tell this very strange story? He's essentially trying to address this question. He's telling everyone the kingdom of God is here, and yet there's many broken realities all around us. There's still the presence of conflict, tension, evil, and strife. How do we make sense? Can the kingdom really be coming with all this brokenness around? And he says, yes. This tension is actually a part of it, and it won't be forever, but have patience, remember your foundation, and remember that ultimately you're not the one who decides which is which. We will regularly be living in the tension of the kingdom coming, and right next to it, all around it, there will be people and places still in need of redemption. So our call as Trinity Grace Church, Park Slope, is to live in that tension as peacemakers. Not to be those who say, we need to tear things up and separate them and make clear who's where, but those who lovingly live in the tension and say, we're going to seek the peace of this city we're in. We're going to pray for outposts of the kingdom of God to to crop up, to grow. We're going to try to be agents of peace and renewal in our our own lives. We're going to try to be those who, who are putting the words of Jesus into practice, who are saying, our life is built on this foundation, so we don't have to try to find our foundation in the alternative visions being lived out in our city, but we're also not going to try to make final judgments on any human heart. We're going to leave that to God, and we're going to be loving, and that means loving our friends and people who are like us and loving our enemies and people who don't look like us and people who are who who are as far away from our comfort zone as possible two realities of these stories in the kingdom of god there is peace that follows urgent decisions the reality of the first parable is forcing you into an urgent decision what are you going to base your life on don't delay (laughs) 
Because the day that the storms come and the water rises and the winds beat against the house is not yours to decide. What are you basing your life on? An urgent decision that made properly leads to a, a foundation of peace in your life. And then there's also peace in the kingdom of God through patient waiting. There's certain realities that can't be divided right now without doing great damage. We're patiently hoping with confidence, leaving final judgment in the hands of God, seeking peace, putting the words of Jesus into practice. We're going to go to the communion table in just a moment, but first... um, I want to talk about a very practical reality of doing this in our neighborhood. It's good for us, even at the end of a sermon where we so often are, are narrowing down into our own hearts and saying, okay, what does this mean for me? Uh, that's a, a good and appropriate question. But sometimes we need to have the doors kind of kicked open again and say, what does this mean for my neighbors? What does this mean for the city? What does this mean for the kingdom coming here on earth as it is in heaven? So I'm going to give you just a few moments of personal prayer time to ask that question of the Lord, of uh, what we've discussed about the peace of God coming in, in our world and what that looks like. Uh, just give you a few moments of personal prayer, and then I'll invite you to the table of communion in just a few moments.